Uh, Let's pray as we get started with our study this evening. Father, we're thankful for your word, thankful for this church and its commitment to teaching and preaching the gospel. We pray that that would be true of this church for many years to come. We're thankful for the other ministries that are going on in this building right now. Awana, the next up teen ministry. We pray that the gospel would be presented clearly in both of those. We ask that if there's a need for someone to accept Christ, that they would do that tonight. And we ask for unity among the workers in those ministries, that they would uh, know what they're doing and why they're doing it, and they'd be able to give you glory uh, by doing their work effectively. We ask us for the ability, we, we ask for the ability to focus for us tonight uh, on your word and on the other things we're going to talk about, and uh, just give us a clarity of mind and the ability to focus at the end of the day. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Now, I am aware that Sunday evenings are not the best time for taking in large amounts of information. How many of you are ready to just soak it all up? Maybe not. Usually not on Sunday night. But nonetheless, I do have a lot for you tonight. Now, I don't want you to worry about being here late. It might be dark because the time changed. But uh, I don't mean that we're going to be here for two hours. What I mean is uh, I'm going to talk about a couple different things. And uh, it's more of, a, more of a shotgun than a sniper rifle approach tonight. And part of the reason for that is because I wanted to set aside part of this evening's message to explain what's been going on in the children's and teen uh, ministries in the year that I've been here. And I also want to give you a taste of uh, what I think we can expect in the future there as a church. And also I want to challenge you with the word. That's how we'll end. And I want each of us to remind it when we get to 1 Corinthians 12 tonight about the importance of using our gifts to serve the church that Jesus bought with his blood. So we'll be all over the place tonight. I'll do my best to connect the dots uh, as we go. But uh, just so you know, we'll cover a few different subjects. At this church, we teach the four-direction disciple, which basically means that when someone comes to Christ and places their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins and the salvation of their souls, That person will not stand still, but they will move in four directions. The first direction being worship. Coming to Christ means that you become a worshiper of God. Two Sunday evenings ago, we looked at Romans 12, which tells us that being a living sacrifice for God is our spiritual worship or our reasonable service of him. Secondly, when someone comes to Christ, they become a servant. Jesus came to earth not to be served, but to serve. And he showed that most clearly by giving his life as a ransom for many. In the same way, we are called to be servants. This direction is the focus of what we're talking about tonight and what we talked about two weeks ago, this short mini-series. This this second direction is our focus because we're talking about spiritual gifts. But at the same time as we're looking at what the Bible says about spiritual gifts, we're keeping an eye on the ministries of our church to see what opportunities are available to use those gifts. And the third and fourth directions that this church teaches are witnessing and discipling. And I won't spend as much time explaining those. We're focusing on serving tonight, as I said. But they show us that the next step in the Christian life after serving, actually 
probably one of the best forms of serving is telling other people about Jesus and helping them grow and do more in their walk with him, discipling them to be more like Christ. All four of these directions contribute to and help us fulfill the church's mission. Calvary Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples in a community of grace. And the reason for this short series, emphasizing our second direction of serving, is because there's a need in our church for us to think missionally. This missional thinking needs to happen on two levels. One level is the programs that we offer. Our programs or our ministries need to be on mission. When someone sends their child to one of our Sunday school classes, we should be able to tell them why that's a good idea. And the answer shouldn't be because we've always offered Sunday school or because I went to Sunday school when I was a kid. Our reason shouldn't be sentimental or traditional. It's not about what the program is. It's about what the program is doing. What is it doing to and for the child? Does Sunday school help us fulfill our mission? If yes, we should keep doing it. If not, we should change Sunday school in some way so that it does serve the mission. We've started this very conversation in the children's ministry here at Calvary. Uh, so far, there have been two meetings where all the children's workers were invited and a number of smaller meetings with uh, certain people and leaders where we discuss the purpose of children's ministry, whether or not we are fulfilling that purpose and what steps can we take to do a better job or what steps can we take to make the various children's programs flow together in a seamless way so that we're working together and not competing with one another. One small change that was made was in the names and logos, which you can see on your handout if you got one of those. If you didn't get one of those, they're in the back. You can make sure to flag down Jim and grab those. Uh, but for, for those of you that don't know yet, next up is the name of the youth group. It ministers to teenagers from when they are entering seventh grade to the summer after they graduate high school. And train up, on the other hand, based on Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. Train up is the children's ministry, and it encompasses every program that is focused on kids who are sixth grade or younger. So this is Awana, this is Children's Church, Children's Sunday School, Sunshine Ranch, the nursery even, and VBS. Those are train-up ministries. A new logo obviously says nothing about the health of a ministry. The point isn't the logo or the name. The point is what the logo is illustrating. What we're trying to show with these logos that look very similar to each other is that Next Up and Train Up are doing the same thing. We have one purpose. And for that same reason, the mission statements in those programs have been worded in this way. The mission of Next Up is assisting parents in the discipleship of their children and helping teenagers take their place in a community of grace. While the mission of Train Up Kids Ministry is assisting parents in the discipleship of their children and helping kids love God and his people. Knowing what our mission or what our purpose is is essential to knowing if we're doing a good job. But it's not the only step we've taken to be clear about what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, we wanted to find a way to emphasize that the four directions are operating 
not just in our church, and it's not just the four directions for big people. It is the four directions that we believe God intends every Christian to move through. So these four directions have been crafted into four core values for our children's ministries. Gospel-centered worship, church-focused serving, mission-driven sharing, and family-first discipling. That last one being really, really important because both of the mission statements start off by saying we are assisting parents. Who is it that has been tasked with the discipleship of their children? It's not me. It's because I'm a the pastor of kids, right? That's not really my title, but you know what I mean. It's not, it's not me except for my kids, and every parent is responsible for their own children before God. So the church is assisting parents in that role. But if we believe that the four-direction disciple is made up of stages of walking with Jesus that every believer needs to progress through during their life, doesn't it make sense to teach these principles to our kids? Doesn't it make sense to evaluate our children's ministry based on whether or not we are helping kids to become worshipers, servers, witnesses, and disciples. Now, you all know as well as I do that a nice-sounding mission statement and a couple good-looking PowerPoint slides really don't mean anything. But I hope you see what they represent. I hope you see that there is intentional and purposeful thought going into these ministries directed at kids and teens, and I hope that you think of these young people as young people who are worth our time. I hope you see them as the future of this church. And I hope that there are little kids running around in the fellowship hall who are going to preach in this pulpit one day. I hope you see the great benefit in a church doing everything in its power to assist parents in the important task of bringing up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But remember, programs aren't the only thing that need to be evaluated carefully, especially, not when, especially when we're talking about service. The other thing that needs missional thinking is for you as individuals to decide how to serve in the church. Just as every program, every ministry should have its place in the disciple-making process, so also Every individual should know where they belong in the process. Some people are great at making friends and sharing the gospel with strangers. Oftentimes, they are the ones bringing people in the doors of the church or, arguably even better, going out of the church and sharing the gospel out there. Some people are very organized and can lead programs and give direction to other people. In events like the Fall Family Festival and the Backpack Giveaway, those don't happen without people with administrative gifts, administrative minds. Some people are great at seeing and meeting physical needs. If you know someone like that in our church who also has Christ-like character, you should nominate them to serve as a deacon. Some are great with kids and know how to communicate the gospel in exciting in understandable ways. There's lots of areas in the children's ministry for people like that. Some have been blessed by the Lord with more income than they need to survive. And while everyone is called and commanded to give sacrificially, there are some who have been given extra from the Lord so that they have the opportunity to contribute cheerfully to the furtherance of the gospel. Some are gifted to teach the word publicly, once again, 
It's your job as the congregation to select pastors who have those gifts and who are qualified to fill that office. I list all these examples to point out something that our passage of scripture will also be pointing out. And that is that everyone in the church has a different function, a different role to play. And you were placed in the situation that you are in with the gifts that you have by a sovereign God who wants you to use those gifts to serve him in this local church if you're a member here. The Bible does teach that believers have unique gifts and abilities. And I mentioned last week that there's really four passages in the New Testament that talk about spiritual gifts. There's Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. The amazing thing about this is that all four of those passages that mention spiritual gifts, they have the same emphasis. Every time that the New Testament mentions these gifts and abilities, unity and selflessness are emphasized. You are gifted for a reason. We're all supposed to use our gifts for the purpose of building up the body. Look at these examples on the screen. You saw these last week. I think it's good to be reminded. Romans 12, the first passage that mentions spiritual gifts in our, in our list anyway. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Jumping down into verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them with prophecy in proportion to our faith. And it goes on to list more and more gifts. So you're called to use your abilities and use them sacrificially, a living sacrifice. Also, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5. Just look at the purpose statement at the end of the verse in blue up there. It says, so that the church may be built up. Again, a few verses later in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. That's the purpose of the gifts. Here's Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity. There's that unity word, the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're still not done. 1 Peter 4, same emphasis. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Not yourselves, one another. As good stewards, of God's varied grace. The Bible consistently talks about spiritual gifts as abilities that are to be used in the church for the purpose of building up others. And this truth lays out a clear expectation for us to fulfill. Insofar as you have been gifted, God expects you to use it to serve other people. And our four-direction model and our church mission statement teaches us that the best way you can serve and build others up is by moving them along through the stages of discipleship, through the four directions. Serving in the right spot is essential to fulfilling that mission. We emphasized last week when we talked about getting on the right seat of the bus. So with all of that information behind us, I'd actually like us to look at one of these passages and let God's work speak for itself about the importance of service and how to think about our various gifts and abilities. The passage that we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians 12, 
So if you have a Bible with you this evening, you can start turning there. If you'd like to use a Bible that we provide underneath the chairs in front of you, we've got some hardcover Bibles all around the room. You'll find 1 Corinthians 12 on page 1149 of those Bibles, page 1149. And if there's one sentence that I wanted you to remember tonight, it would be our big idea, which is that uh, if you want to be the most effective in your ministry of discipleship, you should consider the best ways to use your unique gifts. We started doing this two weeks ago with the three circles. The three circles represent uh, three things that we're looking for, uh, which if you find all of them in one area of service, it's probably a great ministry for you to serve in. Circle number one is ability. The question to ask, do you have the skill or ability that is necessary to serve in that role? Is this the way that God has gifted you? Do other people agree? Do the people that know you well agree that you would be good at that? That would be a good fit for you. Circle number two, desire. Just because you're good at something doesn't mean you enjoy doing it, and that is important. Now, this circle is going to be the least important of the three uh, because there are certain things that need to be done that nobody wants to do. So it can't be dominant. It can't be dictating us but it's still something to consider. Desire isn't ultimate. Desire doesn't determine everything, but it's a piece of the puzzle. The third circle, opportunity. This one's very important. If you have the other two, if you're good at something and you want to do it, but you don't have the opportunity, there's no opportunity, there's no open door, you're kind of out of luck. We, we kind of know, because God is sovereign, that that's not something he's called you to do. If, there's, if he's not opened the door for you to do it. There's a story about Charles Spurgeon. It may be legendary. I'm not sure if it really happened or not, but apparently someone once went up to Charles Spurgeon and let him know. Charles Spurgeon, for those that may not know, is uh, one of the, he's called the Prince of Preachers, one of the most well-known Baptist preachers the last several hundred years. Um, apparently somebody once went up to Charles Spurgeon and let him know that God told me to preach in your church this Sunday morning. He's telling this to Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Charles Spurgeon replied, no. <laughs> and his reason is because God didn't tell him <laughs> that this man was supposed to preach in his church. Now, this gets into opportunity, right? You, you might have the strongest feeling that God has called you to do a certain ministry. Could that be God speaking? Maybe. But if there's no opportunity or no open door, that could also be God speaking. Now, I really enjoy talking and thinking about church programs and where they belong in the discipleship process. But it's more relevant for you to consider where you belong in the discipleship process. Maybe, using these, maybe by using these three circles, but more importantly by using 1 Corinthians 12 because it will have some lessons that will help us uh, know how to think about the church and how to think about our gifts. Before we get to the passage, there's just one more thing that's worth saying. Um, the purpose of tonight's message is not to go into detail about speaking in tongues and other miraculous gifts. Now, some of you may be thinking, of course it's not, because that would be interesting. But uh, I, personally <laughs> I personally call myself a cessationist, which is the position that we take as a church. Cessationism is a belief that Believers today 
should not expect these miraculous gifts to be normal. Uh, tongues, prophecy, gifts of healing, uh, those gifts used to be active and they had a role, uh, a function in establishing the early church, confirming the gospel message. Uh, but I don't believe that they should be the expectation of believers today. I'm not trying to defend that position right now. I'm not trying to convince you if you disagree. I'll talk to you more about it if you want. That's just not the point of what we're doing tonight. Um, so let's start by reading chapter 12 of First Corinthians, uh, starting off in verse 1 of chapter 12 of First Corinthians. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 4 begins the important part for our purposes tonight. Uh, now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. We'll pause right here after verse 13, uh, because in these first 13 verses we have lesson number one for tonight, which is that different people have different gifts, but they all come from the same God. Verses four through six talk about the varieties of gifts services and activities that go on and are needed in the church. But here's the thing. There's one God em empowering all of them. It says varieties of gifts, varieties of service, varieties of activities. That's all in the text. But it also says the same spirit, the same Lord, and the same God. That's pretty important. It's not as if we are good at certain things because of random genetics or even because of hard work and practice. According to these verses, the, the, the various gifts that we have, we have them because of God. Now, could God have used genetics or given you a desire and a drive to work hard at something and get better at it? Yeah, that could be the means that God have used, but those are not the reason that you are gifted. The reason that you're gifted is because God did it. He's the sovereign one behind the scenes. He's the source. Paul said earlier in this letter, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. That's what these three verses, 4, 5, and 6, are saying. God is the source of these variety of gifts. Look at verse 7. To each is given 
the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So in this verse, once again, spiritual gifts and abilities are the tools that you have to build one another up, to show other people what God is like. That's what manifestation, you're showing something, you're revealing the Spirit. You're revealing what God is like based on the gifts that he gives you. And that word for in this verse is really important because we've already been talking about. But the word for, especially when Paul uses it, it gives us reasons for the common good. That's why you're gifted. You aren't gifted for the purpose of looking great or making your life easy. You're gifted for others. And verses 8 through 10 starts listing out examples. It lists wisdom and knowledge and faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, the ability to distinguish between spirits, speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues. This list is not intended to be an exhaustive list of all the spiritual gifts, the possible gifts that you could have so that you can you know, take this online quiz and figure out, oh, you are a, here it is, this is your gift. That's not the purpose of the list. It's just giving examples. We know that it's not an exhaustive list because there's other places in the New Testament that have other gifts and don't have ones in this list. He's just listing examples. I, think, I actually think the most helpful list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament is in 1 Peter 4. It only has two listed, speaking and serving. These are categories that all spiritual gifts fall into. So just know that in verses 8 through 10, that list of gifts isn't a list to choose from. It's just a list of examples. Finally, verses 11 through 13, the source of the gifts is given, which is God, specifically the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And Paul uses an important analogy of a body to describe what the church is like. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ, or so it is with the body of Christ, the church. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So the church is like a body. It's one, yet many. There is unity, yet diversity. One body has many parts, each with a unique function. One church has many people, each with a different role. The significance of this truth is that we need each other to accomplish the mission. Each member and their abilities are a gift from God. And we can trust God's sovereignty in giving us the gifts that we actually need as individuals and as a church. Don't think, wouldn't it be great if I was this way? Wouldn't it be great if she was that way, if he was that way? We can trust God to provide the gifts that are needed to accomplish his purposes. Each person is from God. Each gift is from God. All of this is really related closely to the next lesson, which is found in verses 14 through 26. Lesson number two tonight. All members of the body are needed and should be wanted. All members of the body are needed and should be wanted. Let's read these verses. They'll be on the screen or you can follow in your Bibles. Starting in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, 
that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body. There's that theme of unity again, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So all members of the body are needed and should be wanted. That's lesson two. We're still on that. There is way more truth in these verses than can be covered in the few minutes that we have together. Uh, One truth that uh, we each have to get into our heads is found in verse 18. God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. It's not random. Proverbs 16 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. There is no randomness in a universe with a sovereign, powerful God. The sovereignty and the power and the control of God is a comfort to us in so many areas of life, and church life is one of those areas. We have exactly the people and resources that God intends for us to have at this time. The way Paul applies this truth is be content with your gifts. Isn't that what he's saying? The reason he's writing this way is because everyone at Corinth wanted a particular gift. They wanted the ability to speak in tongues. That was the gift that they idolized. Everyone thought that individuals who had been blessed that way by God were really doing the Lord's work. Paul is saying, no, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? You shouldn't all want the same gift, then you wouldn't be a body. Is there a gift or ability that you wish you had but God hasn't given to you? I would guess that there is for a lot of us. I know I can think of things that I wish I were better at. And I don't even, uh, I don't even want to be better at them for myself. I don't think. Maybe I do. Maybe it's residual selfishness that I haven't discovered. I think I want to be better at them for the sake of the kingdom. But God hasn't gifted me in that area. So what do I do? Lean into the gifts that God has given me. And, and, what else should we do knowing this truth? The actual application that I would like to make from this passage, we should not think less about the people who have gifts that we don't think are as valuable. It's God's gift to them. How dare we look down on it? That's not how it's supposed to work. It's so easy for us to get puffed up, isn't it? Sometimes we come through and we save the day in some way. I don't know how that works. You know, I mean, we all know how it works for ourselves, but we probably all think this from time to time, even in regards to church life. Somehow we think we saved the day, and we start to think, 
Yeah, I'm a pretty big asset to Calvary Baptist Church. When I go, they're going to have a hard time replacing me, right? We can all think that way, as if the church hasn't been around for 80 plus years and Lord willing will be around for 80 years after all of us are gone. It's no problem for God to replace any of us. Charles de Gaulle said famously that the graveyards are full of indispensable men. The Apostle Paul said, For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He also said, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We're not irreplaceable. And the person who is humbly using what God has given them, they might bear more fruit than you imagine that they will. Like the widow who contributed more in her poverty than all the others who were doing it for the show. All the members of the body are needed and they should be wanted. But also, our final lesson, all are essential, but all are not equal? Is that a typo? It's not. Doesn't that contradict what I just said? (laughs) I don't think it does. I did phrase it this way to get your attention, to force us to think. It's not a real contradiction, though it might look like one. Let's look at these last verses before I get condemned at the Council of Ypsilanti, starting in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Verse 28, and God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? That doesn't mean do it like Ernie. Sorry, had to put that in there. Earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you the still a more excellent way. All are essential, but all are not equal. And our distaste for the phrase, all are not equal, has much more to do with modern sentimentality than it has to do with what the Bible teaches. And I'm here to teach the Bible tonight. What these verses say is that there are higher gifts in verse 31. There are higher gifts. And in verse 28, it literally seems to be ranking some of the gifts. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and so on down the line. Now, it should be said that the highest gift is, in fact, achievable by everyone. And we read about that in chapter 13. That's what he's introducing by saying, earnestly seek the higher gifts. Chapter 13, the love chapter, the gift of love, the highest gift, the gift that will never cease. And it should also be said that one of the reasons that Paul is ranking the gifts is because he wanted to put the gift of speaking in tongues almost last in the list. The gift that all of the Corinthians were idolizing. Chapter 14, likewise, is all about how speaking in tongues is not as good as prophesying in the eyes of Paul. So if the wording of lesson three, all are not equal, makes us sit up straight and a little tense, a little unsure for a second, then it's probably doing a good job of representing the apostle because he wrote these verses knowing that it would offend the people 
who wanted the gift of speaking in tongues. So he comes out saying that it's among the least of the gifts. So what is the actual significance, though, that we can all take away from these verses? Why should it matter to you that all are essential, but all are not equal? Well, I think it should change the way that we think about hierarchy, first of all. Hierarchy has kind of become a bad word in American culture. Many think that hierarchy implies oppression. Wherever there is hierarchy, there must be oppression. Simply not true. Uh, There's hierarchy in the previous chapter. 1 Corinthians 11 involves a hierarchy not only of man and woman, but also of Jesus and the Father. Hierarchy is not bad in the Bible. So I'm saying that this lesson ought to change the way we think about hierarchy, namely that joy is not found in being at the top. Vying for position or for people to see you is not the path to eternal happiness. I'm reading a book with a few of the young men in Next Up right now. It's called Disciplines of a Godly Young Man by Kent Hughes. Many of you have probably read his uh, spiritual disciplines book that's just called Disciplines of a Godly Man. He also wrote one for ladies with his wife. But in that book, there's a quote, and it says, uh, Kent Hughes says, it's easy to be enthusiastic if your work is prominent, but it's not so easy if your labors are hidden. As the conductor of a great symphony orchestra once revealed when he was asked, which was the most difficult instrument to play? He answered, second violin. We can get plenty of good first violinists, but to get someone who will play second violin with enthusiasm, that is a problem. So while I want to say, and I can say without qualification, that each member of this church is needed and wanted, I also must say that we don't need everyone to be our first violinist. Occupying your station, being dutiful, these are lost virtues in our time. And I believe that the congregation that rediscovers these virtues will see God do great things. I want to end tonight where we started two weeks ago in Matthew 25. Two weeks ago, I opened by reading one of my favorite parables. It was the parable of the talents. And in that parable, the master who represents Jesus, goes away for a long time. But while he is gone, he gives resources to his servants to manage. There are three servants in the story. Two of the servants double the investment that their master gives them. They do it by careful trading and hands-on management. But the third, out of fear and possibly out of laziness, doesn't do anything with the investment that his master gave him. He buries it. The master is pleased with the first two servants. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But he was furious with the one who wasted his investment and his resources. So he said to him, you wicked and slothful servant, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. 
For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The message is this. Those who want to please their master, they are going to do something good with the resources that he has given them. It's not so much about your fruitfulness as it is about your faithfulness. And I think it's worth it for all of us to consider if we are using the resources that God has given us well. Are we considering the abundance that God has given us? And are we committed to working hard, getting a return for the master when he comes back? Are we spending our lives well on what's most important? To answer that, we have to know what's important to God. What is critical to God? That's why we started off by talking about the mission. God wants glory. And he gets glory when we make disciples. So let's do everything in our power, which is really his power, to make sure that our resources are used towards accomplishing that goal. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word, and thank you for your people who want to hear your word. Thank you for giving us a desire to learn and to know you. And I pray that we would also have a desire to make others want to know you. Help us to fulfill our mission. Thank you for giving us what we need. We trust your word when it says you gave gifts as you chose. It's your decision. Help us to be faithful. We're fine and content with letting you decide the fruitfulness of our ministry, but we don't want to be like the servant who wasted the investment. Help us not to waste what you've given us. Help us to love you and love others so that we can glorify you by making disciples in this community of grace. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.